0: Let us pray. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires
1: known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may love you and magnify your holy name. By your Spirit, help us seek you first valuing the eternal treasure of relationship with you and one another in service with the world. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives
0: and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Maybe see seated.
2: The first lesson comes from the letter to the Colossians, the third chapter, verses 1 through 11. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of all these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free but Christ is in all and is all. Thus ends the first reading. The second lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke, the 12th chapter, verses 13 through 21. To honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, please stand as you are able for the reading of his Gospel. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, friend, who set me to be judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possession. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store the crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. This is the word of God for the people of God.
3: Thanks be to God.
0: for it is uh, bibliophile.
1: The the best I can determine, the word was first coined in France in the early 19th century. It actually, though, comes from two Greek words, biblion, which translates book, as in the biblion, the Bible, is the book, and phileos, which translates lover or love of, so bibliophile, bibliophile, lover of books. This is my affliction. I, I, I love books, I collect them, I stack them, I ca- they're everywhere. The, the bulletin cover today does not trouble me at all. It's not odd, I call that interior decorating. It's, it's, I just have this problem with books, they're everywhere. They're on my desk, they're by my chair, they're by my bed, they're on the floor next to my chair. I cram them into bookshelves, everywhere I can put them. I tell you that because a few months ago I had an existential crisis um, after a building committee meeting when I realized that when we do the renovations and I'm in a different office in the building, there will be fewer bookshelves in that office than there are in the current office. Oh, is right. (laughs) Because the bookshelves in the current office were already crammed to overflowing. And the crisis was heightened um, when it was lovingly pointed out to me that I am not allowed to bring them home <laughs> um, because I married another bibliophile. We, we, if it tells you anything, we actually got to know each other working together in the library in college and um, so in our marriage, in almost 40 years of it now, we've had no trouble at all sharing the bathroom. Sharing bookshelf space, on the other hand, has been a challenge. So, I had all these books and I had to start, and I was trying to think of ways, I was strategizing ways to convince the building committee to put more bookshelves in the new office when two things happened. First, one of my colleagues um, on the staff, who's one of the other pastors, pointed out to me as gently as could be pointed out to me that this is a luxury that only I have. They won't have any bookshelves and I should hush my whining about it. And secondly, because this was in the late spring and I was doing summer preaching planning, I read
0: Luke 12, this parable that we just read. So, if you go into my office right now,
1: and I'm praying that some of you will after service, um, this is a commercial and an offer, one time only, free, no toll-free number to call. You go to my office right now, you'll find a table behind the sofa and on it are books. And these are the books that I am thinning from the herd. These are the books that I have managed somehow to release. These are the books that I have managed to emotionally detach myself from. The staff has picked over them. The staff has not taken enough, um, but then they're not gonna have bookshelves either, so. <laughs> But I am serious, I want you to feel free. I actually said to Martha after one of the services and to Carrie, I should have actually put them on a cart and put them in the large narthak. Feel free to come up to the office, it's open, and to browse, it's it's free book day at Carrie First today and take what you'd like off the table. What's on the shelves, however, um, I'd like to keep. The truth of the matter is, though, I'd rather not have the Lord call me home tonight because I wanted to build more bookshelves. Let's let's not be foolish about this. And I find comfort in this because I know it's not just me, right? We all do this about something, otherwise you can't explain the whole Marie Kondo phenomenon. We collect, we gather, we keep, we hoard, we attach meaning to inanimate objects and are reluctant to throw them away, and we do only with great reluctance and grief release them. We get to an age, many of us, where we decide it's time to downsize, and so we get ready to sell our larger homes and move into something smaller, and then it dawns on us that everything won't fit in the smaller space. So what do we do? We go rent storage units. (laughs) Because we're going to let the kids deal with it later. <laughs> I want to help you with this. The kids don't want any of it. The great comedian George Carlin said one time, storage, imagine that, a whole industry based on keeping an eye on other people's stuff. And all of that sort of becomes a question, doesn't it? When, when is enough enough? I mean, we find security in having things, and we find security in having things around us that are familiar, but really, really, when's enough enough? When's it time to stop adding on, and when's it time to release? We keep, we keep grasping and hoarding and holding on to things and gathering more and more until we lose sight of why we've done all of that or why we did it in the first place. When's enough enough? A few years ago, uh, Mother Jones Magazine read an article entitled, This New House. It was an article about the growth of the size and the luxury of homes in the United States over the last 40 or 50 years. It was a startling article to me. One in four Americans desire a three-car garage. One in five new homes in America are over 3,000 square feet in size. The average size of a home in America since 1973 has grown by over 1,200 square feet. So the average home in America is now just about 2,700 square feet, while the average American household is actually reduced in size by one person, which means that for each of us now there is more square footage per, per person in our homes from about 550 square feet in 1973 to about 1050 square feet now. There are 14 million American homes with four or more televisions in them. I see some of you squirming out there. And the article went on to talk about the devastating environmental impact of this growth in size of our homes and the accumulation of more things, what it's doing to the environment to heat and cool such larger spaces. When is enough enough? Because none of us have enough closet space.
0: Even with the larger homes, and when you're gone, whose will it be? That's the question Jesus asked, right? when When you begin
1: Luke chapter twelve, he's actually not talking about any of this. He's actually talking about other things. this wasn't this wasn't his topic of conversation at the moment. He was trying to actually encourage the disciples and teach them as they were, on their discipleship journey. He, he was telling them things like, don't, don't show the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Don't be like the Pharisees and be hypocritical like they are. Don't, don't be afraid of people who can kill the body. Worry more about people who can kill the soul. He reminded them that God even counts the hairs on your head, which in my case saves the good Lord a good bit of time. And he was teaching them about how they would testify when they were brought to the time of trial. And then somebody in the crowd, in a classic non sequitur, somebody in the crowd, who apparently has not been paying attention in class, shouts out, teacher, tell
0: my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This, they're wanting Jesus to probate a will.
1: This is an estate settlement. This thing starts as an estate settlement.
0: Whose will it be when you're gone? Mine, no, mine, mine, no, mine. And then, if you you want somebody in Scripture to identify with, I want to suggest
1: to you, you try this anonymous friend in Luke 12 who shouts out from the crowd. Because I think he's a lot like we are. He wants his fair share. He wants things to be even. Actually, he doesn't. He wants probably just a little bit more for himself than his brother has. And we can be that way. And we really don't care what else is going on when the moment arises that we need to demand be fair. We demand it in the moment. Regardless of what else is going on, we have mastered the fine art of
0: greed and consumption. It's about us. It's about me and what I want. So Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, answers
1: this guy with a parable, right? There's a farmer, he says. You notice, by the way, he was already rich when the parable started. Jesus says this is a rich man. It's not that he earns all of this and then becomes rich. He's already rich. There's this rich farmer. He's not the brightest guy around. He's not a bad guy either. You probably wouldn't mind having him as a neighbor. His farm's done very well, bumper crop. He's got more than he knows what to do with, and he's got more than he can put in his barns. And so he decides he's going to tear down the old barns and build new barns, bigger barns, to put all that he has in the barns. And he convinces himself, if I do that, then I've added to the 401k, and there's plenty to retire on, and I can buy an RV and winter in Florida and summer in Maine.
0: And God says, time's up. You fool, time's up. And the barns and the crops, whose will they be then? When is enough enough? And then Jesus gives us his punchline. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich towards God. Here's the thing. This parable is not a jeremiad or a rant against money or
1: possessions or those who have both. Because it's Jesus teaching and because he's teaching a parable, it's about God. And it's about the kingdom. And it's about kingdom life. Jesus says up front, the problem is greed. It's one of the seven deadly sins. Here, literally, it's a deadly sin. And Paul reminds us in Colossians that greed springs from idolatry. The problem is idolatry and greed. Idolatry, which is the fundamental sin. Idolatry, which is the one that is at the base of all other sins. Idolatry, which is the sin that displaces God and puts something else on the throne of your heart and your affection and in the parable, in the case of this rich man in the parable, and perhaps in our case as well, the idol is the self. Did you hear this guy? Did you notice that when he talks in the parable he only talks to himself? He only references himself? What should I do? I have no place to store my crops. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. I will store my grain and my goods And I will say to my soul. Eleven times in three verses he says either I or my. I have a
0: three-year-old grandson who's not that self-referential. He talks to himself about himself. He makes of himself the God. And he should have been
1: in conversation with someone else who could have set him straight expresses no gratitude to God, he shows no appreciation to the workers, the laborers who actually probably planted and harvested and barned the crop, he demonstrates no sense of a need to share out of his abundance with those who live a life of scarcity, there's no hint of recognition that his Jewish tradition would have been the tradition of Moses and the prophets which demanded and required care for the widowed and the orphaned and the stranger, He actually believes that the poem Invectus is right, that he is the master of his fate and the
0: captain of his soul. And God says, you fool. Now God calls him that. I
1: don't because I'm in no position to call him that because I see too much of myself in him, too much of the way I live my life, spend my time, use my resources, too close to how they can topple God from the throne of my heart. have a friend, a mentor in ministry actually he has an only child, he has one son and he used to say that um, he always believed that his son after he was gone would know what he valued in life and what was important to him in life by reading his journals until one day he realized that his son would know what he
0: valued in life and what was important in his life by reading his checkbook you might want to throw those away I mean, ouch, now we're back to my books, cable television, sports tickets. You're going to have to answer that one for yourself. Jesus, Jesus is suggesting in all of this that the issue isn't your
1: fair share or having more than enough. He's not warning in this teaching about money or wealth or planning for the future and having a pension fund. He's warning against greed, against insatiability, about the desire to have more than you need. Because that desire leads to idolatry, to false worship. As someone else wrote, the farmer's problem isn't that he had a great harvest, or that he's rich, or that he wants to plan for the future. The farmer's problem is that his good fortune has curved his vision so that everything he sees starts and ends
0: with himself. He makes himself God. And God says, you fool. The issue is God. And whether or not we're living toward
1: God or we're living toward something else, whether or not we're clinging to what we want and what we think we need and keep grabbing for more, or whether or not we learn to release for the sake of the kingdom. The issue is about living a life of fullness that cannot be measured or living a life that leaves a mess for the kids to deal with. Or as Paul wrote, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Don't set your minds on things that are earthly, Set your mind on things that are above. We try to sort this out in our lives. We, we, all of us, try to sort it out. It's hard. What's the balance between enough and too much? What's the balance between enough and not having enough at all? What's the balance between giving away so much that, we have, that we're then dependent? We try to sort all that out, and we try to help you here each week. We gather here each Sunday, and we do religious things for about an hour, We pray, we sing some songs, we hear scripture read, and sometimes it's not comfortable. I'm reminded that Mark Twain said once that it's not the part of scriptures that I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do. So we read scripture, and sometimes it's uncomfortable, and then we hear a sermon, and then we have music sung and played, and sometimes we gather around the table, and then there's this, every week there's this one moment, and it's the moment that I'm afraid we may miss. It may pass us too quickly, and yet I think it may be the most religious moment of the hour because it's the moment in the hour where our Monday to Saturday life directly touches what happens in this hour in this room. Martha, or me, or someone like one of us stands up and says, now it's time for us to show God what we really believe. And some of us stand up from where we are and we go to the back and we get these brass-plated bowls. And we bring them down and we pass them to one another. And we let God pry from our fingers what little bit he can get out of there. And we go home, at least for the moment, satisfied that we've done what we should. And that moment passes as quickly as it takes to hand that brass-plated bowl from one person to the next. We don't let it linger long, do we? We, we move it on. And we go home and we turn on one of our four televisions, we kick back the recliner and we look for the Braves game or whatever movie's on the Hallmark Channel. I mean, really, Christmas movies in July, y'all come
0: on. (laughs) But sometime later, sometime later today, maybe tonight, probably tonight, when the house is quiet, when the only sound you hear is the sound of your breathing, the beating of your own heart, when the house is quiet and the house is dark and you can't even see all the stuff that you've got. You might think about that moment and you might wonder if you let it pass you, this
1: opportunity, this this one moment in the whole hour when you could be seized the happiness that eludes you the rest of the week. This one moment when you had the opportunity to open your hand and let go. This one moment when you had the chance to release. To do what we sang earlier in the opening hymn, to cast
0: each false idol from its throne so that you could proclaim that Christ is Lord and Christ alone.
1: And you think about that. And if you're like me, when you're thinking about that, listening to your own breathing, not being able to see all the stuff
0: around you, you're probably going to pray that you don't hear a voice whisper to you, you fool. And in that moment, later today or tonight, I hope you remember something else the teacher said. This teacher who emptied himself.
1: This teacher who did not grasp what was rightly his which was equality
0: with God, but emptied himself so that we could be full. This teacher who said in many places in many
1: different ways that it is not in how much you have,
0: it is not in the abundance of your possessions that you find happiness and joy. Life and happiness, joy, he says, is to be found in how much you give.